listening to Texas Slim's Vision, where we discuss food intelligence, the Texas Beef Initiative, and how to design an international lifestyle starting right here, right now. You don't want to miss this. And now, here's your host, Texas Slim. Hey guys, this is Texas Slim from Texas Slim's Vision. Tonight I have a returning guest, Justin Trammell. He is my local producer and supplier of animal protein and food source. Um, We're going to sit down here. We're sitting down every Sunday night and we're having these discussions. We're going to be talking about food education, food intelligence, regenerative farming and ranching, uh, animal protein, just everything that we need to look at as far as history, agricultural, uh, anything that basically touches our lives these days, we're going to bring it to the forefront with a new type of view, uh, a more of a community-based understanding of where we are and where we want to move forward within our own local communities. Uh, both Justin and I live in the Desert High Plains on top of the Llano Estacado in Northwest Texas. It's called the Cap Rock. Both of our families have been here for a long time. So, hey, Justin, how's it going? Oh, pretty good. Glad to be back. Glad to have you back. Um, That first recording that we had had a wonderful feedback, uh, a lot of good comments, a lot of good education. I had a lot of people give you many compliments on your your knowledge, your education level, how you're approaching everything uh, as far as what you're doing, you know, with your your new processing business, uh, the way you've uh, laid a foundation of understanding and education in your community and some of the um, some of the programs that you're, you've been a part of throughout your whole life, basically, especially ever since you were a little kid all the way into, you know, elementary school, junior high, high school, college. These community programs have followed you the whole way. Um, so it's good to have you back. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. I'm just glad to be able to get some stuff out there. So, yeah. Uh, so, did you were you able to spread out the podcast kind of to your group of people and everything? Yes, I did. I got them, got it out, and I got quite a bit of good feedback. I even had one of my uh, old college friends reach out to me, and he wants to build one of these plants up there in North Texas. So, that's that's always a good thing. Mm-hmm. For the sake of people who might not have heard us last week, uh, let's talk about this type of uh, this type of plant that we are talking about because we are in Texas. We have uh, some different rules and regulations here in the state that are favorable to basically have a, have more of a micro approach to food processing and production. So, why don't you, in your own words, kind of explain what you're talking about? And how you see this is spreading across the state, kind of per the request of your college buddy. So, really, what we've started with this is is more of a microprocessor, like you mentioned. Uh, we're we're really capped out at about thirty head a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, our aging cooler does not allow to do any more than that, and really, that's to our benefit because that allows us to get into the state inspected program along with the custom exempt program under the state. And it it really, it comes down to the fact that we're going to be able to do a really good job and spend the time that we need to with those individual animals that come through, as opposed to having to worry about pumping out 300 head an hour or whatever, you know, those big facilities do. And so it's, it's, it's a very different approach to it because it's, it's very much centered on the quality 
And then it also allows for local producers to recapture those lost control points on their animals that they're producing where they lose the control on, on the processing side and then where they lose control on the you know selling of the meat and getting the meat into people's hands and so that's you know it's it's been a really uh popular idea and i think that once we're up and going and kind of get you know whatever kinks are going to be in there worked out we really will be able to get this kind of model into people's hands and hopefully you know it'd be ideal to see one of these plants maybe every county you know maybe even more than that but if you could even start to get close to that that's that would just completely revolutionize these uh how people have had to raise beef and kind of fall into that beef production system as it currently stands yeah, I think that, you know, I think we talked about that last week as far as if we could have one per county, um, that that would put a huge foothold into the, the, the renaissance of the beef processing industry, especially in the state of Texas. I think that we're going to have to lead this. I think that uh, I don't think any other state is equipped as we are as a state. And I think that one thing that I want to emphasize here is the amount of work and the amount of progress and the amount of intelligence that you're bringing to the game for other people to kind of mirror your approach to not have to go through the trials and tribulations that you've gone through because of the time you've spent on this is is astronomical it's been very intentional and very direct you've you've engineered something i don't think a lot of people understand how complicated it is for you and and you said you had your your college buddy contact you let's talk about that because there's a guy in east texas that has contacted you as well and he says he wants to do about 10 plans and now you have a college right. friend reaching out to you and talk about what he wants to do and what he feels he's missing and what you can actually help him with to streamline this to where we can start getting these you know, popping up per county. Well, he listened to our podcast and, you know, he said that everything that it, that we were talking about was right on. Mm -hmm. And so he's a, he's a beef producer and he's just like all these other guys, he raises his cattle and then he has to sell those yearlings generally at auction. And he, uh, of course he understands, you know, he's a, he's a quite an intelligent individual and he, so he understands where he's missing out on that. And actually he'd already looked at um, doing a mobile processing facility, but that in the state of Texas, it can be done. That's sort of another layer of complication that you add on top of it whenever you're talking about a mobile processing facility. Uh, my, whenever I, I, we actually looked at doing a mobile facility too, but basically what it comes down to is you still have to have a brick and mortar uh, plant and so you can have a mobile component to it, but it, in the end, if you're only looking at, you know, servicing local people, you know, 60 mile radius or less, yeah, you kind of, you know, the mobile side of it becomes a lot less important, but he, and while I was talking to him just briefly, you know, he did mention how confusing everything was and how they didn't know who to talk to, to even start to get an idea of what they would have to do to, you know, even start to be compliant. So that definitely, that was, that's the big issue right there is, is even starting to, you, you have to know who to talk to before you can even start to design anything. 
And, and so that's what I hope to be able to kind of bridge and, and give the people, the tool people, the tools to do that without having to spend just hours and hours and hours on the phone and, and going through, you know, every, every person that's working for these different organizations that either knows or doesn't know what they need to do. Yeah. And that's going to be like, um, I guess that's, that's going to be extremely valuable and it's going to be. And I understand that's going to be kind of it's going to be kind of difficult for you in a way, because here you are, you've gone through the process, you're you're about to open after your final inspections. And then, you know, you're going to be running a business and then you're I think pretty, pretty quickly, you're going to have a lot of people wanting that boxed and put into a manual type of way to where they can actually, you know, because you're not going to be able to consult every person that comes to yeah. you. And, you know, th there's going to be a, a period of time here where that that knowledge base that you've developed is kind of streamlined and being able to basically be delivered to these guys that have the money. They have the uh, time they have the resources. The, the one thing they're listening or missing is, is your intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if we could do that, you know, then it it would be a whole lot more feasible to get these plants up and going and and really, as I said, start to really change the horizon as far as beef producers and the options that they have. I think you start to do that and you're going to see some other beef producers jump on board pretty quick. Whenever you see that, you, you say whenever these guys, I think it's going to be like, you know, there's kind of a white elephant in the room because you can't really go against the system. You can't bite the hand that feeds you in a way. And you can't be, you can't be detrimental to, to your own efforts by, you know, trying to beat the system by dialogue or anything like that, saying who the bad guys are, all that. What we have to do is bring a form of truth to the discussion saying these are the laws, these are the laws that we can follow, and these are the ways that we can actually bring this form of processing back. And I think that is that's the most valuable um, message that we need to probably let everybody know here is that what we're trying to do, we're not trying to go out there and buck a system in a in an outlaw sense type of way we're really we respect everybody's position here and we we want everybody to have you know we don't want to um jeopardize anybody's integrity or their decision making or their business models that they already have what we're really trying to do is saying hey let's improve what we can improve on one way we can improve on that is is providing a processor starting out one per county right basically we're just wanting to provide another option or another solution to this kind of thing because that's really what that is you know bare bones it's just a, another solution another yeah. another way to do things so and you know i think it's going to be i think once we do that we're going to have you know lawmakers on our side i think we're going to have you know from from the county all the way up to the state legislation because you've already you've you've dealt with all of them you've dealt with city to county to to state already and you know, I could see that this is this is kind of be a, a, a kind of new renaissance in, in our meat production in the state of Texas. And then hopefully if we have some success with this, you know, this will be able to be spread across different states. I have a buddy out in uh, Tennessee 
and he he's got land. He's doing a lot of what you're doing, except he's he's not processing. So he's keeping a very close eye on you know these discussions and what you're doing. So I think we will get a lot of traction and a lot of attention from other states. And I want other states to know that you know we're going to try to scale this to, you know across the United States per state law and per county laws across the United States to be able to do this. And so laying that foundation of, you know, understanding what the most important thing is with the, the animal production and processing in, in the state right now and across the United States is, is it's decreasing the bottleneck that is being, um, that is having to be dealt with, with the four major processors in the United States. It is a bottleneck and we're trying to streamline that on a, on a local level to where we can have local animal protein delivered from a local source. It's, it's not even more complicated than that. Right. Yep. Exactly. That's, that's, that's all we're looking to do. And I think it can be a really effective thing. And once, you know, once I'm up and going, I fully intend to invite my state legislators out to, to tour this facility and really make them aware of what's going on. And Hey, these are the benefits behind it. These are the jobs we're creating. This is the benefit that we're providing to the community. Yeah. You it's going to be pretty hard. It'll be pretty hard to, uh, to find any flaw with, with those very basic things. It really is. I mean, what are you going to, it's not going to be, cause you brought up the, the, the first conversation we have, it's not going to be a sanitation thing. They've always used sanitation and bacteria and all that kind of stuff against because of the, and you, you did a very good way of explaining that the scale of the, the processing plants, you know, whenever you're only doing 30 per week, that is such a small scale. It's apples and oranges comparing the sanitation uh, limitations or the sanitation requirements for both types of facilities from the industrial size to the micro size. So I, I think that's that's important to bring up again because that's usually been the biggest argument and it's something that's been leveraged against communities being able to do this in, in their communities. You, br you brought up community. I wanted to talk about community today. Um, and we, we brought up, and it's a fascinating, and I, you know, I've, I've looked at it. You and I have had several discussions and we said, hey, let's, let's talk about this, you know, tonight whenever we spoke again and it was the Ogallala Commons and um, what it is it's called the ogallalacommons.org and it is, is basically a commonwealth and do you, can you tell how long has the Ogallala's been uh, active? Oh you're putting me on the spot I'm trying to think. <laughs> well, you can, is it 100 I, I years think, or is it 50? Or no it no I think it's been since 2001 maybe. Okay. I know that they were uh, talking about it and it's gone through a lot of different changes uh, you know throughout that time. Right. Um, I I got involved around let's see two, 2011 is when I would have been involved and so I got involved with their internship program, and that's kind of how I got plugged in to start with. And then it went from there uh, with me getting involved with the local food shed movements and, uh, you know, looking at the community health and actually having an intern of my own at, the, at my farm. And so it's, it's definitely been a ongoing process, uh, but they've they just uh, the Ogallala Commons tries to adapt as best they can to be the most effective that they can, depending on the situation and the year and everything else. 
Yeah. And you brought up something that I said, hey, let's talk about this. Let's talk about um, we've already talked about the food shed. They have something called the 12 key assets Commonwealth. And what it is, it's 12 key assets that they go by that they kind of frame around. And I'm going to I'm going to name off every one of them and I'm going to let you choose which one you'd like to talk about first. And we're just going to go around this wheel. And uh, but I'll start at the top. And the first one is is education. The second one is health. The third one is leisure, leisure and recreation. The fourth one is history. Fifth is sense of place. Seventh is water cycle. Sixth is one, two, three, four, five, six. Seventh is arts and culture. Eighth is wildlife, nature, world. Uh, the next one is soil and mineral cycle. Then the food shed. Ten is renewable energy. Eleven is spirituality. That's a that's a kind of covers everything that we touch in life, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, so really, this is a framework to look at a community and start to get a sense of the overall health or maybe the overall um, resilience of a community because every community that exists has an interaction with these 12 key assets. Some of these are really easy to find and some of these, depending on the community, have really been degraded over time. And this is really just a good way to look at it. And then once you kind of have an idea of what's going on, then you can jump in and you can say, okay, well, let's say, for example, we are missing health. A lot of these small communities either used to have a, a local doctor or a local clinic or something like that. And then they don't anymore maybe the next clinic, you know, is two towns over or something like that. So you can, if you were to look at that and you were to look at that and say an entrepreneurial mindset, you could say, Hey, this community is missing this key asset, this health benefit, whether you're talking to clinic or even a gym or something like that. And you can say, okay, what kind of business can I start to fill that gap? Because every community needs that. And how what what business can I start? How big should that business be? What what should that business look like? And from there, then you can jump off and you can actually start to make a really big difference, because whenever you start restoring these individual key assets, it kind of works with a lot of synergy. Right. And so you start restoring one and then all of a sudden, before you know it, other people are jumping in on other key assets and then you overall you experience a very uh large shift a large benefit in those small communities uh some really good examples are places like tulia or even kittiquay right now right where people have jumped in like in tulia uh one actually one of the the, the gals that i was an intern with she got into real estate and so she started buying these real estate plots in Tulia on the square and elsewhere that were uh, that hadn't been used in a long time. They were neglected. She would take them. She would clean them up, get them where they could be usable. And then she would rent them to two other businesses at very reasonable rates. 
And whenever you have something like that happen, then all of a sudden, I think she was responsible for bringing like three or four businesses to Tulia, which whenever you're talking a small town like that, that is massive. That is. And let's tell people, Tulia, what is it around right now? What would you say Tulia is? Uh, 7,000? <laughs> 7 maybe? Yeah, if that, I don't know. Yeah. It's it's not big. No, it's not. Not big at all. And, and the thing and, about where we live on the Yano Estacada, there's there's – many 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 small towns like that and what they were in the beginning were these small grain towns basically uh or you know cattle towns and you know they're farm towns and they they really took a hit really bad in the 80s and you know i saw that as a child and you know just throughout the years they've degraded degraded but i'm starting to see a light a light at the end of the tunnel and what what you're talking about tolia you know, is something that's very encouraging. Yes, because it's it shows that it's very much possible. But all these solutions, you have to have somebody that really has an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial mindset and spirit because none of these solutions are easy. Otherwise, people would have already done them. Right. And they have to be pretty creative about how they do them. Uh, I already mentioned Kitakway. They've actually you know, they've really been trying to restore their square there. And one of the things that they recently did is uh, a couple was wanting to start a business there on the square and they actually deeded them that uh, building that was on the square. Mm-hmm. And so the city of Kittiquay had jumped in on that and is trying to really take a lot of ownership and say, hey, we've got this these buildings that have been sitting around unused for years and years and years on end why in the world whenever you have somebody that wants to come in and start a business or has a good idea for something that would benefit the community why shouldn't you as a city go okay there it is you know make what you can of it i mean it's a no-brainer right i mean in in, commonsensically it it makes all the sense in the world um it makes you understand the cracks in the system the cracks in the system that caused this decay in our communities. And in, I see a lot of what you're doing in, in kind of my mindset as far as how we're tackling the community-based, um, you know, approach to food that, like you said, it builds a synergy across the board with all of these key assets. Um, one thing that I like to talk about of course, is food. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to go back, uh, you know, as far as the, what would you see? Is, I see a food shed being one of the most important things here. Food sheds in these small towns like Tulia, small towns like Kittiquay, small towns like Happy Texas. Uh, we could go Cress. We could go Silverton. There's there's just, it's like Lightning, Floydata, Matador, all these towns. I kind of see the food sheds as one of the most basically foundational um, starting points. I could be wrong. What kind of what is your viewpoint? Because I see if you're in a place like Tulia, you're driving all the way to Plainview, Texas to go to Walmart, right? And mm-hmm. and so you're if you have these food sheds, what are you going to do? You're going to change your lifestyle a little bit. You're going to change, you know, how you're sourcing. Right. And, and that's where food sheds are pretty effective or a really good tool for looking at that kind of thing because you're you you hit the nail on the head if you're in tulia or you're in any of these small communities 
Sometimes you do have a local grocery store there. Generally, the prices are very high and the quality of the food you can get there is very low. Yes. And so then your only other option is to travel 30, 40 minutes, an hour away, one way to go to another store that might have higher quality, maybe slightly less, maybe not. And most likely none of that is still locally sourced stuff. So if you look at these food sheds, you can get a general sense of, okay, these people live here. They're having to use all these resources and time and everything else to either get higher quality food or they have to deal with the lower quality stuff that they can get. And whenever you start looking at that, then you see that there's tons of opportunity to start filling in with maybe these, if you have a plant in every county, you could always also have a little retail facility like we have connected to ours that functions like a small grocery store. You're not going to have the massive, you know, uh, inventory that something like a Walmart would have, but the stuff that you can carry is going to be extremely high quality. And in some of these small towns, the prices that they're having to pay already a producer is that's that's already like I mean, I either charge that much already or those small grocers are charging even more than what my prices are. That's a good point. Whenever I was up in North Dakota on uh, harvest, it was in a small town. It, it can be it was smaller than something like Toya. I think most of anything that had quality to it was twice as much as any other place. And they they have to do this because they're competing uh, because of shipping costs. Think about that. Right. Because yeah, they're that. they're in a food they're in what's called a food desert. Right. So they're having to ship in every bit of those resources, and the longer farther you have to ship it, the higher it's going to cost. The longer it's en route, the less quality that you have. Actually, uh, I'm already working with uh, H2 Ponics here in Amarillo, so they're a hydroponic uh, produce. Mm-hmm. Uh, operation. They have a greenhouse and they grow hydro- hydroponically, but uh, they're originally from Shamrock. And so they still have family there. And, and the Melanie, the, the girl that's really running H2 right now, she was super passionate about it because she explained to me, and as I am very aware that the one grocer they have in, in town charges these crazy high prices. And so the family she still has there, they actually, her cousin already has a store right now. It's a, it's focused on selling uh, vape pens. However, he wants to get out of that. And he was really interested in this food stuff. And she said that she can her she doesn't have to change her prices any, and she's going to be super competitive with that local grocer. And so I'm going to work with her and we're going to jump in and I'm going to at least provide ground beef and maybe even, you know, some round steak and, and a few other basic cuts that are, because she said one of the main problems is that community didn't have a lot of money to start with. Sure. So I'm going to try to provide some really solid, very versatile cuts. And of course, I'll, I'll include a few higher items as well for anybody that wants them. Right. But get a really good, solid base, because if you got really solid meat products and really solid vegetable products and you can either pay what the grocer is charging or less in some cases you that should really if we can get the word out that should really change that community for the better well 
and I'm starting to, you know, I'm looking at this graph as we talk and you, and I'm connecting them with my eyes. And, you know, right there, you said it. One thing that people need to understand, if you're not already sourcing quality nutrition, let's say protein and uh, produce, one thing you have to remember, and it, it is factual, it is the truth, you're not going to eat as much. You're going to be sustained longer on basically less volume of food. And that basically, what does that do? Well, you, you just said that her prices are going to be competitive. The nutrition is going to be uh, definitely much improved. And then the consumption can go down as well, because what a lot of people don't want to admit, or they really don't realize is the highly processed foods that we are, that are in our, our food supply make you hungry. And that's by design. They make you consume because that's how how they work. And so by having this type of consumption change with our food shed, with the local community, with the nutrition, well, you said it early, let's let's connect a dot. There you go. Your health is improving in the community. Right, exactly. So those those key assets, you can it's really easy to see how the food shed, health, soil and mineral cycle, water cycle and wildlife and nature those are super easy to connect right there. And suddenly, if you have people who are eating better and getting better nutrition, then they might be able to better take advantage of leisure and recreation. Because in a lot of these small communities, there's still a pretty good um, local, you know, leisure and recreation, whether they have, still have dances or meeting at the coffee shop to talk or, you know, whatever that may be. Right. But if they're eating well and they have good nutrition, all of a sudden they can take better advantage of that. You know, then they can jump off and, and there's just everything in this, in these 12 key assets is very much connected. Yeah. You know, earlier I was thinking these small towns, a lot of these small towns that, you know, I, I rambled off in that up here in the panhandle, you know, it's a county-based system, you know, they're not all squares, but it is kind of squared out as counties. But a lot of these small towns that I have county squares, and a lot of people don't realize, you know, county squares, you know, they don't remember them. We, we come from a place, Canyon, and it's Randall County, and the county square there is just, is, is amazing. It's awesome. Just the architecture and everything. And you touched on leisure and recreation. Well, back in the day, you know, from our grandparents and, you know, a little bit even, you know, me as a child, everything was centered around the county square from your coffee shops uh -huh. to your restaurants, to your pharmacy, to uh, the newspaper, to, you know, everything that basically everybody that functioned around town was in that county square. And people, you know, walk the county square on the weekends. Well, that's coming back in Canyon. And there's a lot of leisure and recreation starting to happen around the county square in Canyon. In each one of these towns that I think are targeted basically maybe by these food sheds and these 12 key assets. You know, here we go. Now we've, we've done a food shed. Now our health is getting better. We're having more le leisure and recreation. Um, go back to the soil and mineral cycle. Let's explain that a little bit deeper. Well, whenever you're talking about the, the soil and mineral cycle, anything that grows out of the ground is going to be affected by your soil, by the health of your soil, and by how well that mineral cycle and that 
nutritional cycle within the soil is operating. A good example is actually the uh, the graphic that I sent you earlier today, I think, uh-huh. and it shows these different plants and how deep their root system goes. Most of your annual crops that are very highly commercial crops have a root system that might go six or eight inches total. Whenever you start talking about systems that are managed really well in either no-till or rotationally grazed, if you're talking about pasture, or even if you're talking about a garden and people are planting, you know, more of the actual garden variety type vegetables, the better that those roots can get into that soil, the more that they can pull from them, the less the plant has to struggle and the more that the plant can actually pull and or mine those minerals that we so desperately need from the soil, put it into the plant. If you're talking about grass, then your animal comes along and consumes that grass. Those minerals transfer to them. And then whenever we consume the animal, we get the benefit of those minerals. Same thing with plants. It's just a more direct, uh, Sure. You know, shot as far as that goes. But if you have really degraded soil and you're only doing annual crops that can't ever get past that soil that's being plowed up, you know, constantly, if you're plowing six inches deep, then you're always destroying that soil ecology. And that soil ecology is really important because you have to have your microbes and your fungi and your insects and everything else. And it takes a decent amount of time to basically create those homes for those different organisms. And if you constantly disturb the soil, you're constantly destroying those homes and they don't rebuild quick. No, so, and, no, and they don't. And, and, you know, that's kind of the problem we're in right now. Right. Uh, Cause we went big or you know, go big or go home. And that's what we've done. And that's what's taken place. Um, we, we have to understand what got us here and what was in place before and basically how we can get back. So if we, instead of saying feed the world, let's, let's feed our, our community first. And if you have that mindset of feeding your community first, then it puts it into perspective of basically, okay, how do we treat our soil? Well, how do we get our soil back? what is important for our soil and the root systems, because nobody talks about root systems. <laughs> and, yep. and, you know, you, you just brought up, you know, if, if, our, if our animals um, are eating the grasses, right, there's, there's something basically that you, you brought up to me, and um, there's, there's basically a different phasing approach. If you're going to, let's say we have grass-fed uh, cattle on, on prairie grass out here, you know, whatever type of grass it is on the Yano Estacado, and there's a different way to rotate those, those uh, cattle. So kind of touch on that a little bit as far as how you can do it healthy, productively, that it's good for the cow, it's good for the beef, it's good for the consumer, it's good for the rancher. Well, this actually goes back way far into history. Okay. You have to go back to how these grasslands formed originally. These grasslands formed from the retreating glaciers, and then they formed under the grazing pressures and the fire pressures of the ecosystem. And those prairie ecosystems, that's the only way that they thrive. And obviously, they were very productive, especially at one time 
if you go off of how many bison just were in North America, you know, they, they say there, there could have been 30 to 60 million bison head of bison at, at max. And that's a lot of, a lot of animals yes. to be using the prairie. And they didn't make small little herds. They had herds of thousands of animals at one time. And just think how much, how much grazing would occur if even say a small herd of bison, a thousand, 2000 head, move through an area that's an immense amount of grazing however that also was in tandem with their migratory lifestyle so while they might come through and do what would be devastating to a lot of other ecosystems basically strip graze it they wouldn't be back for half a year 10 months maybe even longer just depended on the individual herd of bison and, you know, of course, where it was and everything else. And so that goes back to the, how these ecosystems formed, because that's, that's how, that's what they were used to. Right. Fire would do the same thing. Fire would come through and it would burn immense swaths of land. But then again, it wouldn't come back, you know, for, you know, a year, two years, however long. And so if you can set up a grazing system that mimics that, that allows for the, your grasses and your forbs and your entire ecosystem to perform at its max. Really what you have to transition yourself into, and this is the best thing I ever heard from a conference that I went to, you have to transition yourself from a rancher to a grass farmer. Uh, and those are two very different mindsets. Yeah, you, 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 we talked about that yesterday, and I'm glad – uh, definitely build on that because that, that, <laughs> I, I love it. And uh, it's so true after you kind of told me what you told me yesterday. Yep. Well, traditionally, whenever you're looking at ranching, you focus on the animal. You're very focused on just the animal. And of course you might look at your pasture, but that's not your main focus. And so whenever you do that, it's very easy to fall into uh, a trap where you just you don't pay as much attention as you should to your ecosystem or if you're only looking at the animals you think well i need the most grass possible for my cattle to graze on that's great but if you're talking about removing all the forbs and all the other plants that are in that ecosystem all of a sudden you throw that ecosystem out of whack and then your grasses you start seeing grasses degrade and the pasture overall degrade and then the health of your animal follows that pasture. However, if you're talking about looking at, at it from a grass farmer point of view, the cow is a byproduct. You're looking at your pasture. You're looking at the ecosystem as a whole. You're saying, okay, what's the health? What is this ecosystem telling me? Are there too many forbs? Is there too much grass? Is there too much cover? Is there, are there massive, uh, empty spots where the dirt is basically dead and if so why and how can i change that and so whenever you start looking at that all of a sudden you're looking out at a pasture a prairie grassland and you and you don't want to just see grass out there depending on the time of year you want to see sunflowers and you want to see even a little bit of mesquite here and there is a good thing you know a an occasional yucca a good thing you want balance and if you achieve that, then that animal that's a byproduct that you're just you actually use that as a tool to to farm your grass. 
all of a sudden that tool, not only are you using it to manage your pasture, but you're providing a, an, you're, you're, you're providing an extremely high quality animal at that point. So if you, if you take that perspective and you take that angle, what you're doing is the more time that you put into the ecology of the grass, the regenerative of your land, the protectionist of the, of the land that you have going on by product, just by happenstance, you're going to have quality, quality beef as well. Instead of focusing exactly. so much on the cow saying, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make that cow swift, uh, switch that, that basically that view and that focus upon the grass itself, upon the land itself, upon the seed itself. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. And so, like I said, I mean, it's really easy to see how those are two very different mindsets. And if you can, if you can make the best use you can of that grass farmer mindset, it, it just, it changes your operation completely. Do you, when did we lose that? If we did lose it, how did we lose it? When did it change? Whatever you want to call it. Well, I'm not. So this is just going to be my opinion sure. because the, I'm not, I'm not using anything that's founded, but I'm not entirely sure that the historical way that we raised cattle around here was looking at the grass because we had such massive swaths of land. Sure. Whenever you have these massive swaths of land and the cattle can move themselves, the cattle will kind of be able to manage their own selves because they're always going to be drawn to the best quality grass, the best quality ecosystems. And so they will naturally move through areas where you start getting into issues is whenever you start to have to fence land off. Whenever you're only talking about a section, a section of land with cattle just wandering about, you know, all over the place with no guidance, that's too small for that kind of system to work very well. And so once we started going to those smaller, you know, fenced off areas, it was, I I think that those grasslands, and I know for a fact those grasslands could handle that sustained grazing for a while. But it's not hard to go through and drive through any of these communities and see these pastures that they you can tell that they have animals on all the time. The grass, if it's still there, is just just as short as it can be. And so it's not I think this is a kind of new mindset. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit of a difficult one to, you know, approach, but it's really how you get the highest benefit from it. Sure. And it, the, I think what people don't understand is, you know, where we are, we, we keep on, I keep on emphasizing it's the desert high plains. But we have to remember, as you brought up earlier, we used to have hundreds of thousands, millions of bison on this land at one time. It's not that the land cannot sustain. It, what was not sustainable is how we approached it. And if we get back right. to the source of basically how it was done by nature, before we ever came along, that is still possible today. It's just going to have to take some new engineering, uh, a different mindset, a different education, and maybe even like an ego check. You know, it's like, hey, I want to be called a rancher. I don't want to be called a grass farmer. <laughs> you know, yeah. And it's tar- You know, a guy. You know, cowboy coming up there. I'm a grass farmer. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. 
Yep. I mean, it's, it's, it is an ego check and it's one of those things too. You have to have enough humility that what you, anybody that's doing a continuous grazing system, if you don't know, you don't know. Uh-huh. That's just kind of what it is. And so if you just, if you've never been exposed to anything differently, then how could you possibly know? Sure. Yeah. And so if you, if you find yourself in that situation where you do find somebody who's doing it differently, then you need to have that humility to look and say, okay, what are they talking about? What are, is what they are talking about is what they are putting forward, something that could actually work. And if it is, and you decide to change, that's great. And it's no, none of this, none of this that I'm ever putting forward is meant to make anybody feel bad about what they're doing no. or how they've done it, you know, generationally or anything like that. I've never, I, you know, I want to make sure that anybody listening that's a, a ag producer understands that nothing that we ever are going to put out is attacking how people are doing things. We simply want to offer a different way to do things. And if you want to do it, that's great. And if you don't, that's okay too, because it's something that you have to make a decision on personally. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, the, the cattle industry is not about, and you know, agriculturally, it's not about ta- attacking people that are in it. People, people survive. They do a very good job. And I've brought that up in several podcasts saying I have the utmost respect for everybody, especially the less than 1% of the people that are in the agricultural world in the United States right now. You know, we used to, you know, during the revolution, 90% of the people were in agriculture. Now we have less than 1%. Mm -hmm. So everybody out there that's listening to this, if you are in ag and ranching, um, you know, utmost respect. Um, we want to basically, Justin and I have, um, you know, what we're trying to do is refurbish our grasslands and our community-based systems in which we choose to to live and hopefully thrive in. So, you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so let's go into that then. So looking at this, the circle of the 12 uh, key assets right there, education education is changing in a lot of ways. We're getting education on the institutional level and how is the Ogallala Commons approaching the education of the, of the younger minds that are coming up that they're trying to talk into going back to these communities saying, Hey, return, don't go off to the city and stay in the city, but come, come back home. And how are they, how are they um, approaching the education? Well, a big part of the education You know, most of these smaller communities, you can't necessarily get a higher education in if you choose that route. Or even in a lot of these smaller communities, there's not even a trade school. So to get any kind of education, both formal and informal, because I would include traveling and seeing the world and meeting other people and different cultures, that's definitely a form of education. And you can't really be a very well-rounded person without those different types of education, not again, not necessarily saying you need a college degree, just saying education in general. And one of the things that the Ogallala Commons has tried to do is encourage people to get that education and then actually invite them back into these communities. Because so often what the message was, even with me, even with on my generation was grow up and get education and go be successful. There was never an invitation that said, go do that. And then maybe think about coming back here and being successful. And to most people's credit, 
I think one of the big reasons that that was never said or never um, that invitation was never given is because they didn't feel like there was anything in this community left to benefit these young people. And, and it is, it's hard. It's very easy to get sucked into a very hopeless kind of mindset. If you just drive through some of these small towns, you think, oh man, there's nothing left here. Why would, why would you ever want to invite somebody back here? That's a young person that you care about. But whenever you start looking at these key assets and looking at these different opportunities that those key assets can represent, that changes that mindset. And you go from inviting somebody back to a wasteland to inviting them back to something that, hey, this this might not be just perfect yet, but you could be the individual that comes back and changes that. Because it doesn't take very many really driven people to start making a very huge difference. Like I mentioned, uh, Delisa and Tulia that did that, she made a huge difference in that community and she was one single driven person. Yeah. And what, you know, another key asset here, and I'm looking at it right now, education, what you just said, boom, it's, it's pointed to sense of place. You know, what that does is basically gives them a sense of place because that's what we want to have. We want to have a sense of place in our community and, you know, a couple of front runners, you know, as she has done in Tulia, She's developing that sense of place because it is a sense of achievement. It's a sense of empowerment. It is the the desire is changing. You know, it's like, hey, I don't have to go off to Dallas Fort Worth. I don't have to go to Austin. I don't have to go to Houston. I don't have to go to Oklahoma City. I don't have to go to Albuquerque. What I can do is I can create my sense of place here at home, and I can actually bring home a new pioneering spirit. Right. And if you love your community and you don't necessarily want to leave long term, then whenever you have those opportunities, it just it changes the ball game completely. Yeah, it really does. And I love how this little octagon is connected. Because <laughs> yep. what happens after sense of place? Well, you, you focus on arts and culture. You know, arts and culture, you know, in Canyon is amazing because we have the Panhandle mm-hmm. Plains Museum there. We have Paladoro Canyon. We have basically a play that's called Texas, and it's the history mm-hmm. of Texas, and some of it's true and some of it's not true, but it's a good play. <laughs> a lot of people come around from all over the world to see it. Um, we have Paladoro, the second largest canyon. We have a good art community in Canyon. We have, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, there's a couple of um, pretty famous people that have come and, you know, done art there. We have Tex Randall. He's a huge statue there there's so much that actually we have the georgia o'keefe georgia o'keefe that's yes i was trying to think of her name and so we have georgia o'keefe and we have a sense of you know history that you know the arts and culture in the history was is founded by the culture and that it became art in a way and mm-hmm. i see i see i see it coming back i went to austin and this is kind of a stretch here but i, I went down to congress <laughs> and all of a sudden i pull up because i always go to allen's boots there and they have a good boot shop in austin and they're pretty expensive it's kind of funny um it's changed throughout the years but all of a sudden i pull up in south congress and there's a stetson hat store on congress avenue (laughs) in austin (laughs) and that would just not have happened you know so i and that goes to that goes to culture 
You know, the culture mm-hmm. of, you know, Texas is coming back a little bit. The culture of the past traditions and heritage. I'm starting to see a little bit in the pop culture of things, which helps these smaller communities. Because I can go down to the Amarillo Library and I can look at these historical photos and it was you know, everybody was dressed up. Everybody was, you know, on Polk Street. Used to be the most lit city in the United States at one time. It was, it was amazing. <laughs> A lot of people don't realize that, you know. And so that's the arts and culture things that these small towns used to have. They used to be bustling little communities, and you know, bringing the history back into the mindsets, you know, helps create that sense of place. Saying, "Hey, it was like this one time. I can recreate this in a new way." And you mm-hmm. know, I, I, that's what I'm trying to bring into my space with the Texas Beef Initiative is is lifestyle, and I think there's a really good lifestyle, you know, that's that's going to provide a lot of leisure and recreation, and you know, it's going to basically. Um, it's going to land into where we live as, as well. And I'll do a shift here. It goes into the wildlife and the natural world. And mm-hmm. one place that we have is called Buffalo Lake. And it's, it's, a, it's a huge bird sanctuary that gets a lot of people. And what it is, it's, it's got the natural grasslands. It's got, some, it's got a dried up reservoir, basically. It's, it's part of a creek system. And so have you been out there lately? Uh, not lately. I, I was actually out there quite a bit in college. I was, I was helping with a porcupine study that we were doing out there. Uh-huh. And so I got to know it uh, quite well, you know, cause I, I would track, they had transmitters on them and we had to find them and see what they were doing quite a bit, but it, it definitely, it's a very interesting thing. Cause that was a, as you mentioned, a failed reservoir because of the contamination from the feed yards, that then required that they drain that reservoir. Mm-hmm. And so it's actually, it's, it's basically in uh, a remediation type program where they're trying to still deal with the immense amount of nitrogen and that kind of thing that, that that reservoir experienced. So it's, it's a very interesting historical and now natural world type, you know, thing that you can go out and see, and it doesn't cost a lot of money. Most of, most of what these small communities have to offer is a very low cost because people in these small communities don't generally have just tons of income to be throwing around and don't want to, even if they do. But most of what we're talking about here is has a lot of value for very little to no monetary value. Mm-hmm. And it's something that's, uh, I, I like you said, I think it's starting to make a comeback because people have had so much of this high volume, no real worth type entertainment and, and places and everything else. And whenever you're from a small town like this and you see that that is something that can be achieved or reachieved, all of a sudden you go, well, actually I do want that. I, I want what my grandparents had. And it's becoming a very attractive thing to these younger folks. It's a very different thing than what they're used to. It is. And, you know, it's almost I, I like to the more that we become a digital space in our digital minds and everything that they're trying to do, um, you know, talking about Buffalo Lake, you say it's it's pretty affordable. I think they still have a wooden box out there that you just put money in. Yep. <laughs> so 
I think it's like $5. Yeah, I think you said so. it's not even more than $5. <laughs> and the last time I was out uh, at Paladuro was $5 as well, I believe, for the day pass. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that's a low time preference way of looking at life and the entertainment. And, you know, for, for the younger generation out there, you know, ask yourself why you desire what you desire. And if we can get the mindset kind of changed and focus back on some 12 key assets here that we're talking about, you know, you're, you're starting to see the change that you said. They start lending and they start becoming symbiotic and, you know, they get in, it, you know, let's let's move over to a new one. And we, we kind of missed this one. And it was my fault when we were talking about the soil and mineral, mineral cycle. We don't get mm-hmm. a huge ton of rain here. You know, we, we do, I, I don't yep. even know how many inches we get here now a year. Is it uh, average? It's about 18 yeah, to 20. That's what I was about. But to that average is pretty, it's very much an average because there's been some years like in 2011. I, if I remember right, we got less than two and a half inches of rain at my place for the entire year. Yeah. And then there's some years like I think it was 14 or 16, and we got over 36 inches of rain out here. Mm-hmm. So it can vary crazy wildly. And, you know, but you, the, the thing about it, our region has survived because it is the desert mm-hmm. high plains. And that's what happens in desert high plains is it, it's very inconsistent as far as the watersheds and the water supplies. So by saying that, one thing that is able to basically survive with that type of water cycle is that the root systems, the soil and everything that was here before, because... Let's talk about the layering approach of, you know, of the the type of grasses that we have and how the root systems and everything, how they can survive in a low water environment. Well, the bit, the big thing with them is that a native grass, a native short grass prairie is going to have a root system that might be six or 10 feet deep. Yeah. And that goes well past that kind of region of soil that, gets severely affected by the changes in your moisture. Let's say this again. Of course, gonna, that's not full. Uh, let, me, let me interrupt you again, because there's going to be people mm-hmm. here that, that just heard this for the first time. Prairie grass root systems are <laughs> how, how deep? Uh, they can be six to 10 feet deep. If you, if you just look on Google image search uh-huh. and look for short grass prairie roots, or root system or something like that. And it's not hard. It doesn't take you very long to find these, these guys that are holding, you know, uh, a prairie grass by the top and the root system comes down past their feet and, you know, curls off to the side. So there's, it's, it's really easy to see how that if a plant that has a root system that deep can mine those minerals, that's not, that are not easy to get, that can mine that water that, might not be there except in those very deep areas yeah that that just that is a, opens up a whole new world of understanding to a lot of people because getting deeper into the root system you're getting more water during droughts you're getting extra extra uh intense minerals that usually would not be delivered to your to your animal um be it uh, fowl be it hog be it you know beef be it lamb whatever it is those minerals are always going to be there they're not having to be recreated through an artificial way every 12 month <laughs> cycle right and that also goes back to how you deal with your grass if you're if you're paying attention to how you're farming your grass 
and you don't overgraze your grass because anytime that the grass gets overgrazed, one of the first things it does is it kills off a certain amount of its root system to try to regenerate the top because the only way that it can do photosynthesis and get the energy it needs is to have that foliage on top and to recreate that whenever it's been hit very hard, grazed down very short, it has to get a, give up all the energy that it would use otherwise to maintain that deep root system and reestablish the top. Once it reestablishes the top, then it can fo start focusing on getting that root system reestablished. But if it's constantly being overgrazed, that root system gets shorter and shorter and shorter, and it has access to less and less and less material. And so then at that point, if you have a super overgrazed grass, it might only have a root system that's closer to the annual root system of like a six or an eight inch deep root system. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, it, it seems like a no brainer to most people. I mean, cause you explain it so well and it says, why aren't we doing it like this? You know, why is this something that is overlooked? And once again, this is not attacking anybody out there, but I think, I think what, um, what I want to focus on is People are going to be out there and there. I've talked to tons of people and just to be real here, tons of people that want to get started in this type of lifestyle. They want to get out of the cities. They don't know how to do things. They, they need to have some hopium. I think we call it. They need to understand, you know, how to go about this. And so I, I really think that turning them on to the Oglala Commons just to have a good, you know, overview of everything is going to be a very important first step. Um, let's go back to that. Let's go back to the 12 key assets. Uh, one thing that we haven't talked about yet, I think it might even be last on the list. I think we touched everything, but is renewable energy. Um, what are we talking about that? Because we're in Texas. We do wind power. We do gas. We do all kinds of things here. Mm -hmm. So, so that's kind of a twofold because you're talking about the renewable energy as far as actual energy. And then you're also talking about the renewable energy as far as like the human spirit and the energy that gotcha. it takes to do these kinds of things. Right. And so the, you know, the practical side, it's pretty easy, but the main thing that you want to focus on with that is that it's, all centered on these small communities and so you're talking about a very community focused a very personalized uh solution to your power we're not talking about massive wind farms although sometimes that those do, do exist in these communities rarely does the power that's produced there it's it's not used in those no, communities the power that's produced there is shipped off yeah. far far away yeah. so we're talking about systems that would actually produce the power in that community and use the power in that community so small solar panels you know that are based on houses or businesses small wind turbines again that feed directly into those kinds of things. Uh, we don't really have that on the high plains. We don't have like a, a good water source where you can use a, you know, a, a hydroelectric type setup. Right. But if you're in a place that does, you know, that's a great option. And so it's really, it's, it's focused on those small time solutions. Right. And most likely you're not going to be able to produce all the energy that your community needs from that, but it's just another layer that can provide that kind of self-sufficiency and that kind of independence 
that really makes these small communities work. Yeah, that's a good clarification because we do have a lot of wind farms up here in in the on the Yano Gas Takata because it is a cap rock and it catches a lot mm-hmm. of wind. We have a windy, you know, it's not windy all the time, but we do have wind. And so uh, the community-based energy supplies is, is something, uh, you know, that gets missed and is not really discussed enough. And it's something that we we definitely need to pay attention to and really learn to focus on again. And I like that community based energy because a a community that has a lot of energy, you know, because they have a sense of place, they have the leisure Mm -hmm. and recreation that they need. They have the arts and culture. They have the, you know, the wildlife and everything. It leads to a form of spirituality. And that's that's the last one on this list. You know, in spirituality, a lot of people are going to look at spirituality in a different way. You know, I know that I'm a follower Mm -hmm. of Jesus, uh, you know, and everything. I'm a Christian, but this it doesn't have to be Christian based. But, you know, I, I, I just see that, you know, that's the most important thing about all of this is is how are how is your spirit, you know? How's your empowerment? That's a very often overlooked thing, I think, anymore. And and you hit the the nail on the head again. It it's not. It does include established churches and that kind of sure. thing, but it goes even deeper than that. It goes into how are you connected with your food? How are you connected with your community? Uh, it is because those those things radically change a person and then they again they affect lots of other things within these key assets they affect your health immensely if you have a strong a healthy spirit spirituality about some things with your food with your community maybe even organized religion all of a sudden that's going to help your health both mental and physical which then again feeds back into the rest of all those assets and they 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 work in synergy yeah, they really do. And, you know, whenever you're in a, a overly large collective of people, the noise drowns out the importance of every one of these 12 key assets. It, they just do. I've been in the city and it, it's hard to find your tribe. It's hard to find your community based mindset where you can actually truly build some cohesion with and to actually be productive individually and as you know it's hard to be productive on a city level that doesn't bring a sense of spirituality to it everybody (laughs) finds their kind of their spirituality in certain cities in certain ways but it's usually very fragmented it's usually very detached and so that's one thing that I think that we can bring back, you know, with these type of talks and because it is a form of decentralization away from the masses of, you know, centralized thoughts. There's no doubt about it. Yes. And that is not being an isolationist. That is not being anything that is being decentralized from a source that I don't understand and I don't want to be a part of that I see has made some drastic changes to our societies in ways that I wish that wouldn't have, that I wish that I could, I wish, and I tell everybody, this is my number one thing, live like your grandfather did or your great grandfather, whatever your age group, there's something there. There's something that extremely Mm -hmm. important that we can get back. And, and once again, go ahead. In the modern day and age, too, and, and I've already brought this up to you, there's a 
really a big push towards the collectivism or not standing out, not not really cultivating your individual strengths. And this this common asset, these 12 key assets show that it takes all kinds to make a community because I'm really strong in some of these assets and, and in some of the other assets, I am incredibly weak. And so it takes all these different people with all these different passions and all these different strengths. And in that kind of community, those, those differences are celebrated. They're wanted, they're, they're amazing. They, that's what you want. That makes for an extremely rich community. If every single person in the community was like me, it is not going to work. <laughs> me neither. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, that's something that's, that I feel like that we've lost. That's, a really beautiful and, and, and just a very overlooked and underappreciated kind of thing. And I think that's, it's an extremely important viewpoint and, you know, it, it is, it is, there's so much truth there and it's not arguable and it, maybe it's not for everybody, right? It, it, it can't be, <laughs> it yep. can't be for everybody. Um, but one thing it does deserve is deep consideration of the validity and the value add that this does bring to basically our communities, to our states, to our counties, and to our nation in a way that is not being talked about enough. And, you know, you and I are basically, especially you, you're the producer and supplier, we're coming at it from pure animal protein. And that mm -hmm. is, if you don't have pure animal protein in your life, you don't have anything and you can only go so far. And there's communities out there across the world that yes, they survive on just vegetables, but they also have other means of vegetables that we don't have. Like in Africa, they have this, this type of mushroom that grows to be, you know, 12 feet across and it's a great sense, uh, source of protein. We don't have that here. What we have is the animal protein. So saying that, you know, with what you're doing, Let's talk about somebody that is dreaming and dreaming out there that doesn't want to go big. They don't want to go small. They want to kind of be a medium size, let's say now a grass farmer. <laughs> that's the way to approach all this. If they want to be a grass farmer that has these tools called cattle, um, you know, how would they go about that? Let's say how many acres would you shoot for? Well, that's that's really going to be your biggest hurdle probably is getting the acreage right. because uh, land anymore is just not super cheap and getting land that you can reasonably expect, you know, because if you're talking about very many cattle, you do want enough land to be able to rotate them through. If you're talking about a small herd, either just for a family or a hobby, mm -hmm. 100 acres or less would easily do you. Right. But you're going to have to be very intentional about how you fence that and how you rotate those animals through. Because in the same sense, if you don't do those things, 100 acres with, say, 10 head of cattle is not going to be enough. You will turn that into bare ground. Right. So it all depends on if you're doing what you need to. After that, then it really becomes a matter of scale. For me personally, I would love at least a half section, so about 300 acres, to a full section, about 640 acres. Right. If I had that, I could expand, I think, about as much as I would probably ever want to. 
and be able to produce about as many animals as I, I think that I would physically be capable of doing that per, on a personal level, you know, without hiring another person or something like that. Right. And, and so it really, it would, it would depend on what you're shooting for. If you're shooting for self-sufficiency or if you're shooting to be more of a commercial producer where you, you feed other people. Right. Um, and, and then of course it's going to depend on the animals you have too. Yeah, that's true because we have, because uh, depending on the breed of cattle, some are better suited for grass grazing than others. If you're throwing in sheep or goats or hogs or poultry on top of that, then you're also bringing in these other things and they, and they can work in synergy, but again, you have to set up your system so that it can do that. Because if you don't, then you're setting your system up to go fail. Right. You know, the way, the way I approach it with, you know, where I am in life and, you know, what I have ahead of me and, everything that I've done, you know, I'm person like me. I want to feed basically 10 people for the rest of my life and their lives is I think a lot of people out there, if they don't have the means to get a half section or a section or even a hundred acres, you know, around 10 people to be able to feed 10 people, you know, I think that's a good starting point and a good topic of discussion for a lot of people to say, Hey, this is kind of where I'm going to start thinking about this you know, how, how would I go about that? Well, that's, that's a lot easier. I think whenever you put it into those kind of terms, Mm -hmm. because on average, I think we discussed this last time, you know, a family of four would eat around a whole beef, you know, six months to a year. And so with that, if, if you're talking 10 people say, if you had a herd of 10 cattle Mm -hmm. and say that you only had nine calves a year, that's, that should be pretty close to getting that kind of thing, uh, you know, taken care of at that point, depending on how intensively you want to manage, you know, something like 20 to 60 acres Mm -hmm. would be a lot more doable. Right. Well, I see the, how, how society, let's say, you know, me having the, the city skills and I do have the blue collar skills as well, but having the city skills, you know, I can work through the computer. So if I was going to do something mm-hmm. like that, I could get my 20 to 60 acres and, you know, I could do the, the work that I do online through the digital world. And I would have a lot of time to actually work that land, work that cattle, work the grass in ways I think we're, we're, we're embarking on a new phase of being able to tackle stuff like this. So not having to do the big commercial, taking care of your family. And being able to do it affordably and something that is sustainable sustainable, and something that you can help self-finance because you're, if you're doing your food and you're doing processing for food, you know, for 10 people, you're still going to be able to at least, you know, maintain. So, you know, I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm just uh, throwing stuff out there tonight because you no, I know. <laughs> I, I, I definitely started thinking about this. I'm talking to a lot of different people, and I, I really think that that's going to be kind of a starting point for people to understand and start grasping. It's like, hey, this is what I want. You know, here I am. You know, maybe I'm in my late 20s or 30s. How do I how do I achieve this? What's my first step? And you know, I just had a podcast. And if somebody if if somebody doesn't have the experience with animals like that, I would definitely 
highly advise you start small right because it it does take a lot of know-how and a lot of skills that you kind of have to curate and develop and so if you just jump in with no skills you might be able to make it work but it's a whole lot better Mm -hmm. if you can start small and even even whenever i started my farm i worked a lot of other jobs to support my farm right until it got to where it could be self-sufficient right and I had that conversation as well with uh, with a guy up in the Northeast, and he he basically has a small farm, and he said the same thing. He goes, you know, you're you're going to want to start with a few animals. You've got to do it that way. You just can't you you just can't do the whole farm all at once. And you know yep. that. It, why would you want to, right? <laughs> why would you want to overextend yourself? I think he said he had a buddy that he he grew up with that started the dairy and it was a pretty large dairy and he had plenty of money in the beginning, but he didn't have the skill set. He didn't have that knowledge. Mm -hmm. He didn't have that education. And so, um, what does beyond everything that we've talked about with the Oglala comments, who, who's going to be attracted to them to use them as a resource? Who's the best person, you know, who are they targeting? Is it just the younger generations or is it communities? Is it everybody? Well, it's it's kind of everybody. So that uh, that internship program that they have, the way that that works is they find they either find a business or an intern first, Mm -hmm. and then they they pair them with that internship that works for both people involved. And generally, they try to pair them with that internship in their own communities. And we've had interns that are, you know, most of the interns are high school and college age. But we've had interns that are, you know, middle-aged and even, uh, you know, up there. And it, because this isn't really, these internships are based in you learning things. You do get a small stipend, Mm -hmm. but they're really based in you learning those skills uh, for whatever internship you're doing. And and we've had internships and everything from accounting to, uh, you know, agriculture to, uh, I think finance and software and medical, we've had actually had lots of medical, mm-hmm. um, ones. And, and so it's, it's very much based on what these communities have and what they can offer and, and finding the people that are interested in that. Cause you don't want to stick an intern in something that they're not passionate about. That's, sure. that's not, we're, we're not just placing people to place them. We're placing them with purpose. Yeah, exactly. Purpose-driven life, purpose-driven destinies, um, you know, everything that I'm definitely stand by. And um, so let's get back to uh, where you are as a processor. You're, you're waiting for the inspections. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, you know, we sent that off and they have 30 days after you send that off to come out and inspect you. Um, and so... Hopefully, you know, we'll see them. I really would be surprised if we, if I hear from them this coming week, just because it is the week of Thanksgiving, but that week of the 29th, I really expect to at least hear by then and then they can get out here. And once we're inspected, we'll be rocking and rolling. So, (laughs) well, everybody's going to ask, do you ship? Do you ship? (laughs) They're going to be wondering. (laughs) No. And, uh, that's, you know, that's one of my, big focuses and it kind of always has been is I want to feed my local community and I've got so much demand that really just from a business side of it, there's no reason to do it. Yeah. But in conjunction, it's also an issue of the cost of shipping and the quality because 
I could do everything right on my end and package it like it needs to be packaged. And then whatever entity is delivering that could mess it up en route. And then you get a box of defrosted meat. Yeah. And so I've, I know that there's ways to do it the best you can, but it's just because of the local demand, that's what I've always done. And, and anybody that has wanted to buy from me that's far away, I've always very much encourage them to try to find their local producer. Right. And that's what I'm bringing with the Texas and the uh, Deef Initiative. Um, you know, I'm, I'm scraping the internet to get all the local producers and suppliers that I can. And that's one thing I want everybody to hear from me as far as the Texas Beef Initiative. That's how we're leading this is what we're trying to do is get you tied into your local. Uh, there's going to be times that, yeah, maybe people from California are, are going to get their beef from Texas. And that's great. But our long-term goal and the solid play here and the net positive play here is that, hey, you're going to find a local producer by accessing the Texas Beef Initiative's platform, and it's going to be solid. It's going to be information that you can count on and that, you know, we're vetting as many people as we can. And the importance of everything that I'm doing and working with you is to feed your community first and to access your 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 food your solid nutritional food from your communities first because that's that's how we're going to win that's how we're going to gain leverage against a system that tries to you know shortchange us a little bit in our capabilities and our quality and we have to remember the closer you are to your animal protein the better the nutrition's going to be <laughs> right Yep, exactly. And so, you know, those places that don't have the local producers or the local processors, you know, at that point, then, you know, that's that's why we're trying to look at this on a county right. level, because at, at the very least, if you had one microprocessor like we had, like we're doing, you know, in in your county, that generally is within a reasonable traveling distance. Yeah. And, you know, I bring that. That's why I bring in lifestyle to the Texas Beef Initiative is like. Hey, take a Saturday, take a road trip, go to a small town, wherever it is. Go, go let the animal, go let the children see the, the animals, whatever it is. Right. You, can, you, you can frame it however you need to as far as your family's desires and how you like to use your leisure and entertainment and your road trips and how you like to spend your weekends. But there's something there. There's something that can be rediscovered in a lot of ways. Yes. Well, and if you have these local producers, I have yet to make a, meet a local producer that doesn't want to show off what they're right, doing. Right. Especially, especially if you're coming out to buy a half or a whole beef, I would gladly spend, you know, an afternoon showing you what we're doing and why we're doing and how we're doing and show you the animals and everything else. That's a no brainer. And that's what, and that's a good point because I had somebody ask me and I said, if you can't look at your producer in the eye and shake his hand and he doesn't want to shake your hand and look you in the eye, then there's a problem there because he should be very proud yep. of his product, proud of his process. He should be able to say, hey, yeah, I want to be educational because I want my, my customers to know how I do this. I want them to know the value that I put into it and the validity of my actions into everything that I'm doing. And that's, that's very, that's a very strong point there that people need to understand the day mm -hmm. you can go up. Like every time I buy beef from you, I look at you, we shake hands, we look each other in the eyes and there's something that mm -hmm. there's something there that means a lot. And of course, once again, it's something that we've probably lost 
it's something that we need to bring back in an, in a new way. We have the means to do it. It's important. And, you know, it brings that community spirit. Yep, exactly. And, and I would just reiterate that if you have a local producer who doesn't want to show things off, that is, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're no good, but it, it, that it would be a cause for question at that point, because you ever, like I said, every producer that I know of has so much pride about what they do and how they do it. Right. And that's exactly what you want. And that's why that as a sort of a tangent, the, the extra labels that a producer can get uh, uh, for whenever you're talking about a local level, those labels generally don't mean anything. Yeah. That that's, that's so true. That's so true. So, you know, you're sitting there, you're sitting in your, your new place. I can tell cause it looks mm -hmm. new and it's behind you. Um, <laughs> but everybody's getting this audio, but you know, let's, let's walk somebody through. Like if, if I'm going to drive from, let's say, uh, let's, Dalhart. I'm going to go to Amarillo. Then I'm going to come source mm -hmm. some stuff from your place. We're not going to tell everybody where it is yet, but it, so what, what do you expect? You're going to have, you're not going to be open every day, all day long. You're going to have certain hours, certain days, right. and you're going to tell us what you're going to provide as far as the options. If I'm just coming off the road and I want to get some beef or fowl or, so it, or lamb, whatever. Right. It really, one of the benefits to having a smaller place like this is I'm basically around almost all the time. And if I'm not around, then my dad would be around or my brother-in-law would be around. And so we are going to have business hours probably on the retail front. You know, we're looking at more like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you know, three to seven and then Saturday most of the day. But because we're here and we live here, if somebody was wanting to buy a half or a whole or a quarter or whatever, it's just as easy for them to, to call or send a message or contact me on social media. And I would be more than happy to have that ready and, and waiting because we're going to have that ready to go to start with. And so it's not like that would be the extra effort involved for me is incredibly minimal and the extra benefit that people get as the consumers is, is quite a bit substantial compared to, you know, Walmart or something like that. So that's a, that's an easy, Basically, we're here almost all the time. The only time I probably wouldn't, and I would if I really needed to, but I try to reserve Sundays for family and that recreation sure. and leisure type. Sure. But yeah, in as far as because a lot of people are going to be new of you know purchasing and sourcing beef this way or animal protein. Let's let's go to like if if I wanted to, all of a sudden I needed a how much you're going to keep on stock, put it that way, you know, to where if somebody comes up to you tomorrow, whenever you're open and say, I want a half a cow today, you know, are you going to be able to do that? Yeah, we should. It, it also depends on how many people ask that, you know, at once, mm -hmm. because with only being 30 head a week, right. you know, we'll probably, I imagine we'll keep, you know, maybe five whole beef around on hand maybe five and five of the grass finished and the grain finished mm -hmm. and uh that's that's gonna have to be a learning process too because you know we need to have enough on hand to keep the retail area stocked like it needs to be and we need to have enough on hand to be able to put out you know a half or something like that but even if even if that wasn't the case even if i was already sold out for the week the thing is, is we are always going to have cattle coming through here every single week. Mm -hmm. So most likely, if I'm already sold out for the week, you're going to be able to get it next right. week. 
So, well, in what that brings in and kind of what I make, make a point of is that's a low time preference way of living your life. It's, it, it, it takes intentional thoughts and actions. It's just not a knee jerk saying, Hey, I need to go get a couple of steaks at Walmart. I have to think about that. Mm -hmm. And what I want to do, well, I'm probably going to get an eighth or a quarter of a cows just so I can have options and choices for the next month or so. And so, you know, it changes your lifestyle in ways. It changes your thinking. It changes your thought patterns. What else I, I, I put up something today on Twitter as a visual of, of the, the different cuts of a cow. Um, you know, mm -hmm. and that's going to be something that people want to educate themselves on to understand all the different types of cuts, where they come from in the cow, yes. learning that anatomy of the cow. And whenever, like, I'm going to buy a, a full, you know, cow from you, and I'm probably split it up with family and friends, of course, or I'll just keep mm -hmm. it for myself. No, I'm not going to keep it for myself. <laughs> but, uh, that'd take too long. Uh, and we don't want too much time in the freezer anyways. But, uh, you know, I'm going to get all the cuts. But also, let's talk about the organs. Let's talk about everything that you do with mm -hmm. those cuts and how you make it into the ground beef you mix. Because a lot of people have different approaches. How do you approach it? Right. Well, it really depends. Uh, you know, I have quite a few customers actually you wouldn't believe it but the what's called the offal or you know the or the organs the heart the liver the tongue mm -hmm. uh that kind of stuff i actually sell a ton of that partially because it's really hard to get and because it's really hard to get from a source that you can trust because the thing is is like the liver if you have an animal that's been given tons and tons and tons of antibiotics, that liver is probably not in a very good condition and probably not something you want to consume. A liver is a filtration. It's it's not a good thing yep. unless it's yep. pure and it's pure. And so you, yep. And you want to be able to trust that source. So I have lots of people that buy those kinds of things. And we're also going to be offering to so anybody that's, you know, really focused on health, but maybe don't want to directly consume that kind of thing. We're going to be offering what's called primal ground. And so that's ground beef that's mixed with the heart and the liver. And so it comes out and it looks like regular ground beef, but it has those good organ meats in there that provide all those really intense health benefits because of the minerals you get from that. And so that's, that's going to be another option. And again, that's something that we'll be able to do because we are a small facility. And so we can do that in a very safe manner and produce a very high quality product that makes it a lot easier for people to access and that, that primal ground. And this is a good point to bring up is whenever maybe I can't afford a bunch of T-bones, ribeyes and uh, porterhouses, but what I can yeah. do, you know, in nutrition is important for me in these smaller communities that can't maybe afford what I can get that primal ground and that nutritional value is going to be 10 times better than the average hamburger yeah. or even the better than the hamburger you have, because it has that, you know, the yep. organs in there. And, and even, you know, something like that is going to have even, even more of those nutrients than even a steak would because a lot of those organs have concentrations of minerals you just don't get in the muscles. Right. That's just that's just what it is. So I mean, I can't wait. <laughs> that's, that's a, but you know, in, in, as far as the tongue, as far as because people love the tongue, a lot of people never eaten tongue. Mm -hmm. um, you know, of course, the liver. We talked about the liver, the heart. There's so many parts. How much of that cow does somebody get? They get they get the bones too, right? 
Yeah. So we're, I, I always sell out of the bones mm-hmm. because uh, if you've never had bone broth from real bones that's been slow cooked and had a little bit of apple cider vinegar put in there to, to draw out those deep nutrients, that bone broth is, there's no comparison. Mm-mm. It's, it's something that's for one, it's amazingly tasty bone broth. That's made like that. Every person that I know of that's done that, that's something you can just sit there and drink. Yeah. Just, just straight. No, I mean, it tastes amazing. And then whenever you add it into your cooking, you know, it takes a regular recipe and just gives it the razzle dazzle. I mean, it, it makes it just crazy amazing. And so I always have a hard time holding, holding onto the bones because so many people want them. But once, once we're open, we'll actually be able to cut bones. Mm -hmm. And then people also do the cooked bone marrow. If you've never had that, that's a really, really nutrient dense and very tasty way to prepare those. But it takes, again, a smaller processor that can go in and, and cut those bigger bones in half and then where you can roast them. And then there's also the uh, shanks of the animal. So that lower part Mm -hmm. of the leg after the main muscle, but before the hoof, that's called the shank. And that's a really good cut to utilize along with what's called the oxtail or basically the tail of that animal. Right. And both of those are very heavy on the bone, but they have an amazing flavor. The benefits that you get whenever you cook using those different cuts because of the bones that are involved, you, you have all those other good nutritional benefits. And it's there's a lot of that beef that can be used that just is not on a commercial level, mainly because of the time it takes. Right. And once again, another low time preference way of approaching this, approaching, you know, how to produce and then how to harvest and how to utilize every part of that cow that a lot of us humans, they use it in different ways. Maybe dog, I don't know what they use it for in the big industrial. Ones. Yeah, generally it's, it goes into the protein uh, uh, denaturing. Mm-hmm plants and they turn it into dog food and, and other products like that right. so it doesn't necessarily get wasted it's yeah, just it doesn't go directly into it human doesn't go into human consumption but in in as it should though because what we need is humans right now because we are metabolically bankrupt as a nation and i say this all the time everybody 78 percent of <laughs> americans are either overweight or obese uh one out of two of us is uh diabetic or pre-diabetic 40% of our children between the ages of 5 and 11 are overweight or obese. That is a problem, and we need to address that. And the way you can address that is eating pure animal protein. Okay, that was my spell. <laughs> I had to get that out of the Well, and you're right. And, and the, the flavor quality whenever you eat something like this is so radically different and so much better that it's – I mean, everything about that is just – better there's just no there's no i don't i don't know of a better way to put it it, it, there really is no comparison Uh, it changes every way how you look at food people don't realize what they are missing and what value this is going to bring their lives to approach this in part of the texas beef initiative on the platform i'm gonna have several sections in that platform that website i call it a platform because it is but most people will understand website the website is going to have a section called mine your protein and it's going to talk about everything that we just went over because people don't know. Mm-hmm. They don't know the cuts. They don't know the, the benefits yep. of, of the tongue or the oxtail or the shank 
uh, or the bone broth or how to do it, how to look at it, how to prepare it. And so mining your protein is going to come on and it's going to have a whole different look to it. And it's going to have a whole different understanding that people can say, oh my gosh, I now see why I need to be buying this half a cow every six months for my family. Because not only, you know, I've talked about nutrition nutritional starvation, you know, in the way that we are being starved of our true nutrients in in society and how it's going to get worse. During the Great Depression, you know, the soup lines, well, I guarantee you those soup lines had more nutrition than a lot of our (laughs) beef do right now, you know, or a lot of a lot of the food, I'll say a lot of the food that we have right now. And that's what people need to put into perspective. Yep, exactly. It's 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 amazing the difference whenever you get into it and but like you mentioned it does it it also takes a little bit of education on the consumer right. side because they do have to learn how to use these different cuts because we are going to have a standard way that we cut an animal up and so it'll include you know your roasts and ground beef and stew meat and your steak cuts and that kind of thing but if people aren't used to if they haven't cooked a ton then it does take some of that initiative yeah to at the very least i mean google is an amazing tool for that you can go on google and type sure. in keel roast recipes and yeah you're gonna have everything bam, there that's you go. all google's you so yeah. anymore yep anymore it's it's not hard to do but it, it just again it takes that intentional type living it really does and it, it's so much beneficial and it's all for free you know the only thing you have to do is your quality of time and if time it does not have quality to it, then it's wasted time, right? So, um, you know, all of this is it, it's exciting. Um, I really, I'm looking forward to the mine your protein section of of the uh, the website. I think that it'll grow. I because I'm you know people can contribute, and you know we'll have updates mm-hmm. to it all the time. You just said you know Google, <laughs> it'll become the Google of the Texas Beef Initiative. <laughs> it's like, how do I prepare this tongue? <laughs> yeah. So. Now that that would be incredibly beneficial. There's no doubt about cool. that. So you and I knowing each other, how we know. I know how you're going to approach everything. How do you see the Texas? I want you to tell everybody out there how you see it from a producer, from a supplier, from a processor. How do you see the Texas Beef Initiative being beneficial for somebody like you and some and beneficial to people that want to do what you're doing and beneficial to basically all the beef eaters out there or animal protein um, customers out there in the state of Texas? Mm-hmm. Well, one of my biggest uh, hurdles besides getting animals processed has always been just getting the fact that I have this stuff out to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, my best ways have been the farmer's markets uh, because, you know, at the very least, most people that go there are looking for food. And it's always surprising to them that there is somebody that has actual animal protein there right. that is ready to go for that they can buy from. And so that's always been a big thing, a big hurdle. And so I think one of the best things that, you know, the Texas Beef Initiative is going to be able to do is to help get over that hurdle. Now, it's also going to help with the processing side because you're going to be able to help hook in local producers with local processors and or local producers that want to get a local processing facility up and going. Right. And so that's that that will be a major game changer 
as far as all that goes, because I think I really, once we're open up and going, I think we're going to have a hard time keeping up with the, the demand, I, just even on the number of animals we can produce, much less, you know, anything else. So. I agree. I, I just see that once this, because it's already catching wildfire. I mean, I'm getting guys every day and, it, and it's so cool to see this. And I'm, you know, they they're, they copy me on like a, a tweet or something on Twitter and mm-hmm. they say, hey, I just sourced a half a cow because of of your nice. information. And, or, you know, I listen to a podcast. And so I, I just see this catching on, you know, in a way that I, I probably can't even fathom yet. No, I, I think you're right. And so that's that's going to be huge with that. And uh, I think everybody is going to benefit. Yeah, it is. It's everybody's what, you know, we're, we're, we're doing this together. Uh, it's, I want it to be symbiotic. I, I want everybody to join in. Uh, once again, as we started this cast, it's, it's not an attack on anything or anybody. It's just, Hey, we've got a good idea. It's got a lot of virtue to it. It's got a lot of honesty to it. It's got a lot of our truths in it. Uh, we can leverage it to provide better uh, source of protein, better health, better spirituality, um, you know, a better sense of place in our communities. And, you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be doing anything else right now besides this. And so no, that's um that's exactly i mean that i'm exactly where i want to be and as soon as we're open it's yeah you know i think we can make some big changes and like we've already said i think if we can start getting more of these micro plants open across the state we'll really see some changes well and you and i've talked about this and i think that people are going to want to help out you know whatever we got to do to facilitate these processors across you know, the state, I think it's going to be key. And I think that'll be a, a key thing that I can bring, you know, and help build some bridges here. And I see that huge because I think if we have to do it, I think it's part of part of the movement overall that it has to happen, that we can get this world, we can get the world out, we can get the expertise out, we can get this facilitation out to where we can build these projects and get these people involved because i know there's people out there that have either the land and the money or both and they're ready to go they just don't know how to get going i think that's going to be one of the biggest Mm -hmm. things that the texas beef initiative and you know you of course you know that we can do together that'll be very very good for our state yes yep i completely agree it's it's a very exciting thing to be part of well all right we're we're running but we're going to talk about some history. Remember, <laughs> we're going to talk, we've got a couple more minutes here. Um, last time we talked about, of course, uh, Desert High Plains, Yano Estacado, and the Comanche Indians and the Texas Rangers, and we talked. We talked about uh, Quana Parker, and Cynthia Parker was his mother's name. The one that yep. the the woman that, as a child, was kidnapped by the Comanches. Mm-hmm. And so I, I remembered it after we got on the podcast. And <laughs> so I was like, gosh. But, uh, you know, we talked about uh, the Texas Rangers and basically how the Texas Rangers, in a way, I don't know if you knew this, but they, they helped develop some communication systems in the state of Texas. And they, they yes. uh, do you know much about that? I know a little bit. I know that they were really good about being able to get messages across with a, a man on horseback 
and then using some of the other, uh, you know, lanterns at night and that kind of thing. Um, and, and that they were, they had to be good at that because there weren't a lot of them and they had to cover such massive expanses of land. Right. And it was a form of communication signaling is what it was. They, they did, they did it at night and, you know, they would, they would, you know, ride from point A to point B and somebody was already at point B to point C, point C to point D. And what they could do with a very short period of time, all of a sudden you had this form of communication that covered, you know, a hundred miles in, in a way that they didn't understand. And, you know, we look at that and say, well, that's kind of slow, but what it was, it was a sequencing of signaling that had never been done before, never been achieved. And they could do that because what? We had the horses. We had strong horses mm-hmm. in Texas, of course. Uh, we learned a lot of our horsemanship from the Comanche Indians because they had been here for so long and they were they were the expert horsemen of the frontier. And so there was a lot of things that combined and in a lot of ways that how the the Texas Rangers learned how to be Texas Rangers was, and I love to give the respect and the honor that the Comanches, you know, deserve a lot of their toughness, their grit. They were savage. They were very, very detrimental Mm -hmm. to the prairie uh, people that came. It was a war. There was a lot of carnage. Some of the ways that they did uh, execute and take care of um, the pioneers was is something that a lot of people do not want to talk about. <laughs> but, you know, yep. and then that's that's one of the ways that the Texas Rangers also became the Texas Rangers because they had to be almost as savage as the Comanche. Yes, those Texas Rangers were definitely rough and tumble. And especially because if you go back to whenever they were first established, initially, whenever Texas was its own country, they were kind of the quasi-military unit for Texas as a country. And they were responsible for keeping bandits controlled, keeping the Spanish out, the Mexican Spanish Mm -hmm. Um, powers out because you know once once we got them kicked out and we became our own state they he santa Ana wanted to take us back over yeah. desperately that was a massive stain on his honor and and so he he looked for every chance and so the texas rangers had to be extra vigilant and extra tough and they were they were fighting many wars they were fighting the comanches they were fighting the mexican you know the mexican spanish invasions santa Ana did come he did take overtake san antonio again at one point in time a lot of people Mm -hmm. don't realize that they pillaged it uh and then they left they they just got a lot of stuff uh there used to be a border war on uh the was it rio grande or the nueces and uh, I believe it was the Nueces uh, Valley. There. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And so what they did, you know, Texas didn't have a, a, a stern border until after. And this this is something a lot of people know, don't know that after Texas did become part of the United States, there was a lawyer from Illinois that said that Texas might not be on the Rio Grande, but it was on the Nueces. And that lawyer was Abraham Lincoln. And he tried to basically <laughs> screw with Texas's border that Texas had already claimed whenever they were a republic. So if you want to talk about, you know, the federal government <laughs> getting in the way, <laughs> it started with Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and, uh, you know, and as far as the Texas Rangers, they were they were a militia that had to fight wars in uh, the desert high plains of and basically, you know, down there, uh, I guess, uh, 
down there around Austin, really, is you know they had to protect a lot because the Comanches would do raids uh-huh. all the way down to Gal- uh, down to the yep. Gulf Coast, and they they were they were quick, they were fast, they were they they were very effective. And as the Texas Rangers were battling the Comanches, then they had to battle Santa Ana for a number of years. They had to fight wars in Mexico. They had to fight wars in Nuevo or, or Laredo. Uh, that was a big hot spot. So, mm-hmm. but that was and they, and they played a pretty big role in the Mexican American uh, War. They uh, they were really they were used as a very serious scouting mm-hmm. arm of that because they weren't regular military. Yeah. And they actually, uh, they actually were asked to leave <laughs> partway through because they were, and to their credit, they were so, they were rough and tumble and they didn't necessarily have the discipline of a normal military. And so any, anybody in those small Mexican villages, you know, that they would go through that disrespected them or seemed aggressive, they would deal with, and they would deal with them harshly. Yes, they would. Yeah. And, and, and the, the, the general just could not handle it after a while, but the, they also, they were able to take massive, uh, prisoners, massive, massive amounts of prisoners from the Mexican army because they were so good at what they did. They really were. They were kind of like, you know, I don't know if you'd call them the jarheads. I don't know. They were so, <laughs> but they did. They went down all the way down uh, to Mexico City whenever the, during the Mexican-American uh-huh. War. They, they were the first ones in. They were the first ones in. And they were very effective of, you know, changing that war. And once they did secure, you know, around Mexico City, you know, the, the United States Army at the time basically said, OK, you guys got to get the hell out of here now. Yep. <laughs> yep. They, they were they they were too rough, but they you bring up Mexico City. They were extremely good at that urban fighting yes. because they were used to their six shooters and they were used to fighting block by yep. block and and doing that kind of almost guerrilla type warfare and that was really the first time you know here in the states you know as far as the states you know texas the united states and down to mexico that was the first time you'd seen that guerrilla type of warfare that really has any historical reflection on it you know they were you know fighting block to block like you said and you know <laughs> if you dive deep into all that you understand kind of kind of where texas comes from you know where this this little you know attitude maybe comes from because <laughs> yep. it is fascinating history. it's not unfounded no it's it, it goes deep too it's it's something that i i enjoy thoroughly and you know i love i love uh studying you know the texas rangers i want to bring that type of texas heritage and tradition back to you know just the state of texas uh it it is dear to my heart and you know i love it that we live up here in the desert high plains where we have that museum that's it's a fascinating museum and um i'm gonna you know try to bring that in within to the texas beef initiative as well because it's all about a lifestyle it's all about intentional living understanding your history just like on the commonwealth the 12 uh, key yep, that assets. sense of place and that history yeah, and that's that's how we get there and so i see all this coming together um you know i want uh I, it's called the ogallalacommons.org <laughs> so people can kind of just go check it out you know see what they're about and um 
They're they're very good people. Um, I know that you 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 have a very close relationship to to basically. Is he the founder or is he just kind of one of? Uh, he's he's the current director. Current director. He's not okay. the founder. He was he was a part of the founding, but he's not the actual right. founder. Okay. But well, uh, I think that was a very good discussion tonight. I think that was is is going to give a lot of framing uh, for our, our continued conversations. Uh, I think these will play out a little bit, kind of seeing what people are kind of you know attracting themselves to to say, hey, I want to know more about this. You know, the root systems or you know how to maybe start a small you know farm grass farm you know who knows yes. what this we, we covered a lot of different things uh if somebody's particularly interested there's a, a fellow by the name of gabe brown and he's he's either in north or south dakota i can't remember which but he's extremely good and he, and he comes from a conventional farming background and he's made this transition to this regenerative rotational type of agriculture and he even still does some commodities but he does them very differently and so he's an extremely good resource you can find his stuff on youtube and if you just search gabe brown on google it's you can pull up tons of stuff he's an exceptional speaker he's all about you know helping people understand what he's doing and why it's different and that kind of thing so definitely worth looking into awesome and it's gabe g-a-b-e brown Okay, mm -hmm. Gabe yep. Brown. Great. That's pretty easy to remember. I bet a lot of people are going to start searching that after they hear this. Um, <laughs> I, I believe we will air next uh, Sunday night, Justin. So um, okay. I, I want to say thank you again. You and I will be talking to each other, but we are going into the Thanksgiving weekend now. So um, mm -hmm. uh, have a great week, and I appreciate you, you know, being part of this with me and, and I'm honored to have your knowledge and your experience. So until, until next Sunday, we'll, uh, we'll try to do it again next Sunday if you're willing. Yeah. Well, I sure. And like I said, I appreciate that. I, we, we have a platform we can get this kind of stuff out on cause it's, it's definitely worth talking about. Yeah. I think it's going to spread and spread. So let's hang on. It's going to be fun. So thanks again, Justin. Thank you for listening and we will see you guys the Sunday after next. Take care.